Welcome to ABC Cafe. I'm your host, Anthony Apodaca. We are a podcast for curious people, a long-form conversation on culture, art, and politics in the state of Vermont, produced in partnership with Revelry Theatre. Revelry is a small nonprofit theater in the South End. All right, I'm here with Taylor Small. She is a candidate for the Vermont House of Representatives, Chittenden 6-7. She's currently the director of the Health and Wellness Program at Pride Center of Vermont. Taylor, thank you so much for coming on ABC Cafe. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Anthony. Uh, So first off, let's just jump right into it. Why are you running uh, for the House of Representatives in Vermont? Such a great question. Well, I I actually didn't think that I would be getting into this political arena this early on in my life. Um, I think so often as someone who holds multiple marginalized identities, I always thought that my political activism would be exactly that, like grassroots in the community, working within community to make that change and influence our statewide legislature. Um, but when the the opportunity presented itself where uh, Deanna Gonzalez uh, decided to retire this year after serving six wonderful years in the state legislature Mm -hmm. and stepped down. It was her guidance and outreach that actually gave me the opportunity to even uh, throw my hat into the ring. So fun fact is that I actually decided to run just five days before the filing date um, (laughs) and got a campaign together uh, with my best friend and campaign manager, Justin Marsh. I think we did it in a total of 39 hours uh, from start to finish and getting a campaign site up, getting a platform together, putting my name out into the ethers. And I guess there is the the small silver lining in COVID is that we didn't have to do the uh, signatures. We didn't have to. Go oh, that was waived. Because, yes, that was waived this year, which has opened the opportunity for a lot of marginalized folks to actually be able to run. Right. Uh, so I'm actually one of three out uh, transgender women who are running this year for house seats across the state of Vermont. Great. That's wonderful. Uh, on that topic of making it easier for people to get on the ballot, um, what other kind of barriers do you see that would prevent other you know, people from marginalized communities actually running for office? Yeah, I think the first one uh, that stood out for me is representation as it already stands. So when you don't see folks like you reflected in leadership positions like in our local or state government, it doesn't show a pathway for you to be able to do the same. So it has been great to see out um, gay and lesbian members of our state legislature be able to move into positions of power, um, but to not see out transgender legislators here in Vermont, but it was able to see that nationwide um, was concerning. That It showed that maybe there wasn't a place for me at that table. I also think of the financial implications. So folks who typically hold marginalized identities are within a lower socioeconomic class. Mm -hmm. And so our state legislature is one by and for working people. And we really hold that as a a cornerstone um, in our government and being able to have that community focus. But it also means that having it be a a relatively part-time position and little pay coming along with it 
uh, folks are still having to balance two to three jobs on top of that um, if they're looking right. to support both themselves and a family. And yeah. so both of those things are such a struggle. Yeah, I, I can't really imagine having to take, you know, having a couple different jobs and then also being like, you know what else I, sh-, you know, maybe having a family and be like, you know what else I should do? Part time, making very little money, I should, you know, debate bills. <laughs> exactly, which is why we so often see folks who are older in the legislature, so either have an established position um, where they're able to take that time off or they have a savings available to be able to just work full time as a legislature. Mm -hmm. Um, We also see folks who are within means of financial wealth. And so that is why they're able to serve in that capacity, which in and of itself is a separation from the people that we are trying to serve and understanding that our policies and our bills and our laws should really be looking at those most impacted um, and making sure that we're creating policies that are uplifting all Vermonters in this process instead of continuously focusing on the minority that are within the state legislature. Do you think if it were the, um, the campaigns were publicly financed and it was a full-time job that paid, it would actually be a step in the right direction in terms of representation? Uh, half of that, yes. I think public <laughs> financing for elections absolutely needs to happen. As we know, money is really guiding a lot of our systems and especially preventing a lot of change that we're uh, seeing both nationwide and in our state to make sure that we're able to fund all of these amazing programs. Because when we have money's impact coming in and telling you like, no, you can't vote on this bill, or I'm not going to donate again to your campaign if you move in this direction, it doesn't allow candidates or folks who are serving to be able to actually make decisions based on what's best for their community and instead driven by that capitalistic realm. Mm -hmm. But the piece around making it full time is a is a difficult one because I do see such a benefit of having folks be within a working class and being able to show up in both the state legislature and in their communities. Mm-hmm. But I do think there needs to be a recognition around that payment piece and understanding that with the current funding model that we have for our state legislature, we're going to continue to see those privileged identities, white older, probably upper middle class coming into those positions, rather than being able to fund folks who are already working two to three jobs, and then trying to add on making this incredible statewide change on top of that. Mm -hmm. So maybe it's still part time, you just make six figures. (laughs) Yeah, or, yeah, or maybe even the upper, (laughs) upper five figures would be great. Yeah. Um, and my understanding, it's uh, including of expenses, just over twenty thousand um, dollars in payment. And so, uh, one wow. uh, eye-opening piece was, and uh, talking with folks about the run and thinking about what my future would be like in politics, they were like, "Oh, well, it's actually quite a good thing that you're young because you don't already make that much money, so it won't cut down on your income." <laughs> you won't be much. dropping down. You'll just be. And I was like. <laughs> To think that there would be folks who would, A, have to come into the legislature and drop their income, and B, also this recognition that me as a young person in our state is not making enough money already, um, and knowing yeah. that that's the fact uh, is just a wild, 
wild thing. Yeah, I, I understand that. Um, so your other candidates that are you're, you're going up against, what do you have that they don't, <laughs> um, so to speak? Yeah, so Winooski is an interesting race. So we are such a, a small district. Yeah, uh, I live in Winooski, from... by the way, so. Oh, wonderful. Well, I hope I have your vote, Anthony. I know you might. I don't endorse candidates, but um, no, well, you have my you vote, other... but I don't endorse candidates. <laughs> Okay, great. Um, so when it comes to the other candidates running, we have two seats available because we have just about 8,000 folks within our district. Um, and there's three of us running, myself. Um, then we have the incumbent, Hal Colston, uh, who is already serving and running again. And then the third uh, opponent is Jordan Matt, who um, is a fourth generation Winooskian, has been here. Um, his political ties are very much connected to his wife, who is the mayor of Winooski. Mm -hmm. And I think something that sets me apart, well, specifically from Jordan in this, is that I have a plan coming into the state house. I really have uh, a goal to make healthcare reform actually happen here in our state. I know that we have tried historically to move to a one payer system. Um, and the way it was executed did not work well. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that means that we shouldn't try it again and have true leadership around moving in this direction of not having health insurance tied to employment. Right. I think so you actually jumped the gun a little bit, which is oh. fine. But because I did want to specifically talk about what your health care plan actually was. Ooh, great. So we could get into that because it's a little bit vague on the website. Um, so I just sort of read a few sentences about it, and I've I've seen some of your interviews that you've done. But yeah, is it a single payer plan? Because it just you just kind of mentioned reform, which made me think that you were like a neoliberal stooge. And but no, <laughs> no, um, that would come from that that thirty nine hour piece. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> having to get a platform down um, in such a short period of time. But yes, the full the full imagination of where we can move with healthcare reform is a single payer system, mm -hmm. um, and I think it it will be challenging, and I recognize that. But I think this pandemic has truly highlighted for us this piece that when folks are losing their positions in such a time, and they're losing health insurance with it, they're not going to be able to access the care that they need to maintain both their health as well as the health for their family. So, so you, I think, go ahead. You mentioned that, you know, the, the previous attempts to get this done in Vermont, you know, weren't successful. So what, what, what would you do differently or what are you planning to kind of throw around to make it work this time? Well, I think a, a big piece of that really comes down to funding. And I think folks are already worried about the COVID bill that has been created as we're supporting our communities. But where we really need to be moving towards is a, a progressive tax reform and understanding that we make this assumption that Vermont is very progressive in the way that we tax folks based on wealth. But really, it is a flat level line across the board in how we are taxing folks. And so my true belief is that our Vermonters should be paying an equitable share into taxes. And so uh, a lot of folks focus on a payroll tax or a property tax. 
But I think we also need to be looking at dividends and those capital gains that are coming for folks who hold extreme wealth. And when I think about extreme wealth, I think about folks whose uh, income or wealth is not going to be significantly impacted by taxes, which is not what we see for our working and middle class. When we increase our taxes on those who are um, within our working or middle class, it has a significant impact. It is taking a lot of money out of their pockets and leaving them with little to be able to pay for all of their other necessities. But when we look at folks who are holding the, these higher levels of wealth, they actually have the money available to support our state and should be doing that already. Uh, so there was an article in VT Ticker that I actually had pulled up right before you hopped on, which was a questionnaire for everyone running for lieutenant governor and governor. And since you mentioned property tax, I just thought it was interesting. Uh, their position on, and then the quote is, Vermont's property tax rates are too high. And every single person that's a candidate either checked agree or strongly agree. So it's, it seems to me that raising property taxes might be an uphill battle. Um, I'm in favor of it, um, and I am actually a homeowner, so you know you can put me in the whatever category yeah. you want. But I think I, I I feel like, and then the other argument that you hear people make is that if you fleece the rich, they're just going to leave. They're going to go to New Hampshire. They're going to go to Massachusetts. They're going to go to Maine. And Ver Vermont's just going to be left with a bunch of part-time house legislators making $20,000 yeah. a year. <laughs> Which I don't think is the case. Um, and we haven't heard that from folks here in the state of Vermont, especially from folks who hold that wealth. Um I'm going to keep it really local in the conversations that I have been able to have um, in the time of COVID and talking directly with community members. And there are so many folks who are saying, I have the ability to pay more. I have the ability and I want to, but I also want to make sure that it is equitable. That if I am putting in an extra thousand or $10,000 into my state because I want to see it flourish, I want to see it grow. I also want to know that the folks who are making even more than me or the folks who are holding even more wealth than me are going to do the same. Right. And, so, and that the money's not just going to go to like the police. Exactly. Which is a whole other piece that we can get into around just where our money is going already and how, you know, historically we have defunded our social services or human services and continuously are putting more money into our policing or military systems that are not inherently solving any of these problems. If anything, it's, it's going back into our capitalistic society around using uh, people for profits rather than really putting on that community focus mm -hmm. of how we can uplift our folks and build our economy from within. So one of your other, uh, your other um, campaign points is around housing. Yes. So uh, to, uh, give us your position on, on, on housing, and then also we can get into... Um, I guess you kind of have three that you've been sort of touting as the main three, the minimum wage. But I wanted to talk yeah. about housing and in the it, specifically the idea of because I think this applies with healthcare as well. You're you're basically proposing to decommodify a large portion of e either housing or healthcare so that it's not a for-profit business. 
Um, at least that's what I'm assuming you are thinking about with with the housing um, uh, position. Absolutely. I think, yes, when we are talking about things like property tax, um, that definitely impacts both landlords, renters, and homeowners across the board. And making sustainable ways for folks to be able to own homes I, as a young person, um, that pathway to home ownership doesn't seem feasible in its current state. And especially, of course, thinking if I'm moving into the state legislature and having even less income, uh, <laughs> That, that opportunity doesn't seem there. And so really finding ways that we can subsidize and help support new homeowners uh, to be able to really uh, build that economy in and of itself and move away from this idea of uh, being a landlord as a job, uh, since we know that it's really profiting off of folks who are paying in rent and not building their equity in the way that they're able to ultimately own that space. They're just paying in for someone else to own it. And that is not me saying that I am against rent. I am just, I am not for folks making a profit off of rent and understanding that there is a separate job available um, rather than just being a landlord. So in terms of a specific policy proposal, uh, what would you have in mind? Well, there are a couple of things. One is thinking around what um, uh, rent subsidies would look like and making sure that we have affordable housing available. Um, as well as looking at ways that we can level off rent. Um, I think what I hear so often is that this increase of rent is pushing folks farther and farther outside of our urban centers. So folks are finding it unaffordable to live in Burlington for one, and even Winooski itself within its rental properties are becoming ex seriously expensive for folks to be able to live here. And then if they're owning a home or they're trying to rent a home as well that doesn't have the infrastructure available for them to live there safely, um, we need to be supporting both the landlords and being able to update and refurbish those homes so that they are safe, as well as, of course, holding those impacted, which would be our renters. Mm -hmm. So minimum wage to your third point, and then I'm, I'm gonna address a point that I think is missing from your campaign but uh, <laughs> the minimum minimum wage if we raise the minimum wage it's just going to hurt small businesses and they're all going to go under that's the argument so why do you want to do it and what do you say to people who would make the argument that i just made that it's just going to be a burden on your mom and pop stores yeah well, I think it, one thing that we hold when it comes to minimum wage is that it would be a, a stepwise process in increasing. Um, and that being the, in, uh, the emphasis being on our small business owners, because we know larger corporations are able to do that in an easier suite. And so understanding the ways that we can help support small business owners and being able to move towards a livable wage but also holding and understanding why we created a minimum wage in the first place we have a minimum wage so that folks are able to work a single job and be able to support themselves. And historically, it also meant supporting one's family and being able to provide food on the table, pay for a mortgage or pay for rent, um, and not have to work two to three jobs to be able to do all of those things and then not even be able to build up a savings. So yeah. I think that is why we need to be moving towards a livable wage. The emphasis being on livable, being able to work that single job and support folks. 
And I think livable wage is different based on the context that we're in. So when we're thinking of our rural communities, let's look at the cost of living within those communities and what a livable wage would look like there. I think we talk about the $15 minimum wage within more of our urban centers, but I think we need to do some more research into the ways that that looks like within our different communities. And again, the, the emphasis being on our community members who are working and shouldn't have to be working two to three jobs. Right. And, and Vermont is a small state, but it makes sense to con, con, consider it in more of a decentralized way and not just be like, well, in Burlington or Minuski, like it would make this. So when you're introducing a law that, you know, is takes into account that there are a, a pretty big difference across the different counties in Vermont. And it's not just all like a single state um, exactly. with single single needs. Um, I wanted to ask you. Because I, and I've, and you know some of this is probably not because you don't care about it, uh, but you you mentioned <laughs> because you mentioned that you you did this whole thing in thirty nine hours, which is quite remarkable. But one thing that's I noticed that is missing um, is education, mm. and so right now it's gotten a little bit lost in the news because of uh, recent recent events across the nation and you know uh, various things, which we can also get to a little bit because um, it. It's effects Vermont as well. But so we had uh, Jeb Spalding in April announced that he wanted to close the campuses of three state schools. Um, we've had budget cuts at UVM. You know, when you look at a longer timeline, uh, I was talking to, um, uh, who was I talking? Linda Olson, um, representative from one of the state colleges on the podcast. And, and, and in uh, the early 80s, the state colleges were publicly funded by about 48% of the budget was publicly funded. Um, mm. Now, now it's 17%. So it isn't like just in the last couple of months or the last year, they've decided to, you know, cut funding to our higher education. It's been, you know, a long road of, you know, the budget just going down, down, down and down. And then um, this is a long lead up, but sorry, the, um, the Vermont School Workers Action Committee is having a rally at the State House on Monday, and basically they're demanding to delay the start of school, to have health, um, have school workers at the table, and to protect protect vulnerable workers and students, you know, among a few other things. Uh, basically, saying that we're it's too early and we haven't really had enough discussions to really make definitive decisions on school. So. In light of that, do you have an idea of what you would focus on for education? Because it seems to be a very hot and contested topic for most Vermonters right now, besides the other things that you have mentioned already. Yeah, there are a few thoughts that come to mind. One is kind of going back to your other question in what is separating me out from my opponents. And so that is an emphasis that Jordan Matt has, um, is thinking about our ed funding and education funding and where the future of it goes, um, but not a clear plan as to how we move in a direction to find that funding. He mentions uh, payroll taxes as a way to help uh, move in that direction or increasing uh, property taxes, as we just talked about before, which folks are not necessarily for, um, at least on a governor level. But 
there are a few things that come up on my end. One is thinking again of those funding streams. And it's more of a three point plan when we think of the larger pieces. One being how we reform our taxation and making sure that it's equitable across wealth and income. The second piece is exploring what the future of cannabis sales look like and taxation on green money and how we have seen in other states this influx of tax funding that is able to be used across the board. It's basically a get rich quick scheme. It is a get rich quick. And then you have to figure <laughs> out after like after the hype dies down how you uh, come back to it. Um, but definitely, again, when we're thinking of footing this COVID bill, it feels like a, an easy uh, game to get into. Mm -hmm. And the last one, going back to that piece of where is that funding going already? Um, we put millions of dollars into our policing systems as it currently stands. And again, this is a movement away from funding our education systems and our human services systems. So how do we put the emphasis back on our youth and the way that they are able to thrive and grow within our state? especially as we see that we have a growing aging population here because we aren't putting the emphasis on our youngest. But I think another piece that comes up in the conversation when we think around education is that piece of, do we open the schools back up in the fall? And I think, yes, we need teachers. We need the folks who are on the front lines doing this work to have a say in how we move forward. Mm -hmm. Because honestly, it's, it's no joke when we say that these are uncertain times and we don't know what the fall is going to look like when it comes to this pandemic. But what we do know is that we need to move towards a direction of making sure that we have broadband internet access for all of our Vermont homes. Especially I think right here in Winooski where I hear stories from community members of having a single laptop or tablet for a family where a student is able to learn for only a select period of time and then they have to give it to another sibling or they have to give it to their parent to be able to do their work as well and understanding yeah. that we need to build an infrastructure that is available and again moving towards this direction of internet as a public utility instead of this privatized business where folks are able or these corporations are able to stake their claim on a, a piece of the state and say we're going to charge x amount of money and here is the internet that you're going to have access to and so we know that the future is virtual when it comes to learning and especially in the safest way possible during a pandemic would be through building that online infrastructure. Lastly, you have uh, appeared defunding the Vermont State Police. Yes. So walk me through that. I'm assuming that it wasn't up when you initially announced to run. <laughs> It was not new. It was not my initial announcement, um, but has been something that I've held on to even before um, it became a bit more, I don't want to say that it's hit mainstream, but has become a, a pivotal can't, well, political discussion across our nation and seeing various communities defunding their police systems. Mm -hmm. And recognizing that the way that we currently have our police system set up, we are asking them to do so much more beyond their job description. We are asking them to be mental health workers. We are asking them to be addiction specialists. We are asking them to uh, handle civil disputes um, rather than what I envision police systems is 
investigating serious crimes such as a murder or assault. Like those are things where I think police systems have a place. But when we think of ways to solve uh, things like our opioid epidemic, or when we're trying to solve these um, internal community issues, it's going to come from our social workers and our social services, the folks who have developed evidence-based practices that we know are effective, but we haven't put enough funding behind them to have it be a large scale uh, piece within our infrastructure and across our state. I think we see some of these uh, commissions building within our various cities. So I know uh, Burlington in particular has a really great um, group coming together and fighting the opioid epidemic and creating systems for folks to get connected to services. Mm -hmm. But we're not seeing that on a statewide level. And I think that is where this piece of moving away from our police systems and more into a transformative justice model and ways that we can support our community members rather than holding that when someone causes harm as it currently stands, they're thrown into a cage for hours, <laughs> hours, uh, years on end, and then are expected to come back into community with a record that prevents them from being able to get employment or with a record that increases prejudice where they're not embraced within community, which puts them into this cycle of both poverty and in the incarceration cycle. What about defund or def uh, decriminalizing uh, nonviolent drug offenses, for example? Because I, I feel like a lot of what gives police teeth and the ability to sort of harass people are a lot of these arcane laws that actually don't, there's no real study that you can say if you just arrest people, they'll stop being an addict. You know, they just didn't spend long enough in jail making office furniture for your corporate, you know, customers or whatever it is. So absolutely. Decriminalizing is definitely a piece of that puzzle. Um, and again, goes to underscore the piece of once we start decriminalizing a lot of these pieces like substance use, um, it's going to mean less work for our police systems because it will move more into the addiction realm and mental health realm and supporting community members. Right. All right. Well, that's all the time I've got. So, Taylor Small, thank you so much for joining me. This has been a really great conversation. I'm, I've enjoyed having you on. I'll have to, after the primaries or when you're elected, you'll have to come back on and uh, tell me of all the things you're doing. <laughs> okay, I look forward to it, Anthony. Thank you so much for having me. 